0: You're about to join Niels Kostrup-Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent, yet often overlooked, investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic
1: Investor Series. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where each week we take the pulse of the markets from the perspective of a real based investor. It's Alan Dunn here again, sitting in for Niels for the final time this week. Uh, Niels is back next week, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by Rob. Rob, how are you? Good to see you. Uh,
0: I'm well, thank you. It's, I think it's been quite a while since I've been on, probably since maybe June. So back then it was sunny and warm and nice, and now it's cold, wet and miserable. So, uh, you
1: know, that's the way it goes, I guess, with the with the English weather. Winter is creeping in, but you do have the prospect of England in the Rugby World Cup to, to warm the heart and... Uh, It'd give you something to look forward to the weekend, I guess.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, by the time the listeners are listening to this, they'll probably already know the result. But um, yeah, England, England are lucky in that we're the only only team from the, the so-called home nations to have stayed into this stage. Uh, we did have quite a lucky lucky win last weekend, to be fair. And uh, I think we're going to have to do pretty well to beat our opposition this weekend. But, but fingers, fingers crossed, anyway. Yeah. Fingers crossed. It- England played
1: the world champion in South Africa, so yeah, that's fairly yeah, formidable. It's not, yeah,
0: not going to be an easy match. And it, all credit to Ireland last weekend; they played really well and g- came really close to to, to go through against, you know, really top class opposition. So yeah, yeah we'll see how it, it goes. Was,
1: uh, I was in Paris, so it was it was fantastic. Oh wow! In Asia. Yeah, yeah. But, um, we could we we need a whole podcast to dissect the reasons <laughs> for Ireland's... Uh, uh repeated exits at quarter final stage. But no, yeah. they played really well and New Zealand yeah, yeah. Were, were fantastic too. So uh, yeah, the all, the, all the quarter final matches were really good actually, really really close. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, really looking forward to that mate this weekend as well. Um so yeah, it's been a while since you've been on. Um what's been on your radar since the summer?
0: Yeah, it's been a an interesting um few months kind of PNL wise. So uh just was just kind of pulling up my my account curve as I usually do before I come on. So I think um, when I last spoke to you, I was probably down for the year, actually. So I think like a lot of people in the in the trend following CTS space, generally, um, I'd had this sort of shock in March when you know, everything kind of moved against me on the back of Silicon Valley. Um, and um, and then sort of things started to gradually creep up. I think last time I was on, I'd probably made some of that money back, but I was still down for the year. Um, but I have to say, things have gone really well, actually, since mid-July, um, performance has been pretty good. Went on a real tear up to kind of mid September, then a bit of a dip. And now it's it's coming back again. So uh so actually um quite pleased with with um how things have gone. So I'm up about 10% actually for the year, um, which is pretty reasonable, I think, compares well with sort of industry benchmarks as well. But I think it's perhaps more interesting to kind of dig in a little bit and just look at some of where some of those gains and losses are coming from. So on a sector basis, actually. Um, so you know, the big the big news, and maybe we'll come to that in a minute, but the big news in the market obviously is is the bond market, the fixed income market. Um and as an ex fixed income trader myself, I've always got a, a kind of close interest in what, what's going on there. Um and um I yeah, so my second second best performing sector actually was was the 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 bond and interest rate sector. So that's contributed significantly positively to to P N L. Uh, and one of my best performing individual markets was uh, US three bonds, for example. Interestingly, the the best sector of all, though, um, wasn't wasn't actually fixed income, but uh, something that hasn't been in the news quite as much. And that's um, FX. Um, so I can see that I made quite a lot of money out of um, the renminbi dollar, the yen dollar, uh, uh, and also the Aussie dollar. So the kind of Asian Asian currency complex versus the dollar has actually been quite profitable for me. So that's kind of interesting because that. Hadn't really been on my radar, and it's that's why it's interesting to look at these reports and just say, "Oh, I didn't even know I was trading that market potentially." Uh, down at the other end of the the lines, of the equity markets have been quite frustrating this year. There's not really been any clear trends. Um, been been almost a classic kind of sawtooth. Not a bad year if, if you're buying and holding, um, and you know, a big part of my por- my sort of overall investment portfolio is buying and holding and not trading. Um, but, uh, you know, for someone trying to catch trends, it's been quite frustrating. So that that's, that's been, been not great. Um, another report that I, I run is to sort of s- take a step back from my overall portfolio and just look at the market generally. And what I do is I look at the, all of the markets I track, which now is about 250 futures markets, um, so that's pretty much all the liquid ones, plus quite a lot of ones that aren't so liquid actually. Um, and then what I do is I look at the price movements and I adjust them by volatility. So I get a kind of normalized view. Uh, which is perhaps more interesting than just, you know, outright up or down, which, you know, you probably see crypto at either end of the spectrum depending on what's been going on there. Um, so the best performing market this year, uh, actually, interestingly, on both an outright basis and on a volatile basis is orange juice. Orange juice has absolutely flowed. Uh, and unfortunately, um, I had, I've not had a position in it this year, so I've not, not benefited from that directly at least. Uh, and interestingly, all the other markets that are kind of right up there at the top of that ranking—they're all agricultural markets. So they're cocoa. They're, I've got robusta coffee. I've got both both kinds of sugar up there. Um, so it's a lot of markets that you know. I think listening to the news and stuff, there's inevitably a lot of focus and concentration on the financial markets. You know, most people can tell you what the S and P's done this year or what the the bond markets have done. It's being shoved down our throats the whole time. But but um, perhaps only on the more obscure corners of Twitter are people talking about you know, orange juice or sugar or, or what have you. And in terms of markets that have done quite badly, the the Israeli shekel has done quite badly. And that's not really a huge surprise given what's what's in the news at the moment. This isn't a podcast about, you know, current affairs, but obviously what's going on in the Middle East is, is pretty terrible. And as someone who lived um, in the Middle East in my formative years as a child, it was kind of, it's pretty horrific, but... uh you know, this isn't the time or the place to discuss, discuss it or the rights or the wrongs. So let's leave that there. And also doing quite badly, um, at least, you know, in terms of outright performance, so the, the volatility markets. So what that means in practice is that volatility is actually being crushed this year because being short vol, being short the VIX futures essentially means you're betting on the markets getting safer. So interestingly, actually that short vol position has done very well. Now, it's not necessarily that the actual level of vols got massively crushed because a lot of the returns from being short the VIX futures comes from um, effectively the difference between what people predict volatility will be and what volatility turns out like and that's called the, the, the vol premium uh, and that tends to be to be significantly biased in the words people tend to overestimate what vol's going to be and that means when you're holding the futures in a short position you'll tend to benefit from a, a kind of rollover or carry effect um so I would guess, I've not done the maths, but I would guess that maybe half that return is because the absolute level of vol has fallen over the year, which may seem surprising given, you know, we, I guess we've been in some kind of fairly global type war situation because we've had Ukraine going on. Um, but obviously the recent events, obviously you'd expect would have led to kind of more volatility in markets. That doesn't seem to have really happened. So that's also fallen off quite a lot. And then interestingly, um, another market that's done Poorly that most people won't even have on their radar is coal, and interestingly, it's actually Newcastle coal. And I'm actually going to Newcastle for a few days um, uh, this weekend for, for some holidays, So, bit of a coincidence there. So, uh, so that.
1: interesting chance to, uh, to 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 get the local perspective on the coal market. <laughs> exactly. <then>. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, one one more thing, very quickly that I like to do is just look at my overall market positioning, um, which kind is is to me is sort of interesting. So, I'm still substantially short the bond market um as you, as you expect that's my biggest single position and i'm short us 20 years i'm short buns but i do have some other positions in there so um i've still got some of those currency positions on so i'm short swissy dollar yen and also pound i think uh is that a short position or a long position uh yeah it's a short position so i'm not being very patriotic although i am supporting England in the rugby i'm actually betting against the pound at the moment so you know that's interesting um so yeah it's it's kind of been a it's been an interesting year you know it's uh, it's not over yet but but it, for me it's been a, a positive one but not a sort of knock out the part one with quite a lot of surprises and and no overall apart from obviously the short in the bond market no real massive standout kind of trend like we had with commodity prices say sure you know uh, 18 months ago
1: and when we look at the industry just to recap Quickly on industry performance, a month to date slightly negative. Sockgen CTA down ninety basis points. Sockgen trend more or less flat, down three basis points. And short term traders up twenty two basis points. And then year to date, Sockgen CTA up eighty eight basis points. Sockgen trend up ninety two basis points. And Sockgen short term traders down one point seven two percent. So you know, as a as a as an allocator, you know, when you speaking to a manager and you hear they're up ten in a year where the industry is flat, you'll always say, well, what are you doing differently? Or what's, what's your perspective as to why this environment is favoring your uh, uh, well, program? Well, the the first
0: thing to say is, obviously, I'm, I don't accept outside money. So, yeah. sorry, sorry, <laughs> I, I, I can't take that call from the allocators. Although <laughs> I, might, I might let them buy me dinner before breaking the bad news to them. <laughs> Um, well, the yeah, classic I mean,
1: response that you would normally say was, I don't know what everybody else is doing, but you probably do have <laughs> a pretty good idea of what everybody else well, is
0: doing. Well, so I guess there's a number of different answers to that question. One is, and the, the most honest answer is, you know, performance on a year-to-year basis is, is luck, you know, over short, relatively short periods of time. Um, I, I track, I've tracked my performance since I began trading my own money, which, and it, it's terrifying to say this, but it's about nine and a half years now, actually, um, since I started trading my own money in this little futures portfolio, uh, stopped trading institutional money. Um and I do pretty well versus the, the you know the indices, probably a bit ahead of them. Um but that does mean on a year to day a year basis I could, could be there could be a huge difference. And there's been years when I've done much worse than the index and years I've done much better. Um the other thing is I'm I'm you know I'm probably less of a pure trend follower than a lot of people. Um so um, you know, I have quite a lot of other signals in my portfolio. Um and what that will mean is that in a year when trend just blows the doors off, I will tend to lag. Um, and in a year when trend isn't doing so badly, then all the other stuff in my portfolio, you know, I'm still probably a 60% trend, but you know, that other 40% will help kind of push, push everything up. So it sort of smoothens out a bit.
1: And is that, if you look at your PDL attribution, I don't know if you have it, is that what you're seeing if you look at it by different, uh, trading strategies, it's a non-trend, uh, doing well this year?
0: Um, that's a report I haven't run recently, but, but I, um i would that would be my my expectation yeah Yeah, yeah. because as i said if you look across the markets there's nowhere really where you can apart from bonds where there's been a really clear trend and it's quite hard to make money shorting bonds um because the because the yield curve still upward sloping um enough the carry the carries against you um so so it's not you don't make as much money shorting bonds on the way down as you do being long bonds on the way up um so but that you know apart from that you know, say equities there isn't really anything there a few commodities have done really well but it's not like the whole commodity complex it's very been very selective so um it's not really a surprise that to me that it's been a, a difficult year for trend and i would be surprised if you know the trend following part of my portfolio was doing amazingly well um my, my very strong intuition is is that it's mm, mm, the other stuff that's helping
1: and and maybe a bit more of a kind of fundamental uh, question, but you did mention being a former fixed income trader. And there, there is a ongoing debate, I guess, around the term premium and what it should be. And it was negative and uh, it's positive. And I just briefly opened up uh, uh, Robert Armstrong and unhedged on the FT there. And uh, somebody was saying, well, there shouldn't be a term premium anyway. And you always get these uh, debates uh, where the term premium is is knocking around. I mean, what's your perspective if if you were trying to Model a yield curve. Would you have a kind of a baseline assumption for what the tre- term premium would be, or how do you think about that? I mean, I, I guess
0: the thing is about the any kind of risk premium is it's very easy to say that. So I disagree that there should be no term premium. It's very you know it's common sense there should be term premium because um, you know pe- it's putting on my economist hat for a second, you know people have a preference for liquidity, so they they like to have money now, and if they're going to you know lend, lose money and have it back in the future um then to me the further in the future that is they're probably going to want to have a higher reward for that risk now of course there are technical reasons why for example when you get quite a long way out on the yield curve particularly in say um you know in the uk there are technical reasons why the yield curve then tends to become flat or even inverted to do with the long basically pension funds hedging long-term kind of maturity uh, risk um but but you know and and i guess intuitively you're like well if I'm going to lend money out for 10 years, does it really matter if it's 10 years or 20 years, it's still, you know, a long way in the future. But, but to me, you know, if you're going to lend your money out for two years rather than 10 years, there should be a term premium there. But, you know, similarly, um, it's clear that, that there should be a premium to holding risky assets like equities, for example. Um, where the hard thing in becomes in saying where, you know, where, what level those things should be at. And, you know, for example, if you go back to um, I don't know, about the sort of early two thousand certainly, and certainly before that, maybe the late nineties, um, you know, equity returns had been incredible and the equity premium therefore had been very high. And when economists tried to explain the equity premium in terms of, you know, people's aversion to risk, they they just couldn't do it. They the level like, well, of the equity premium is just too big. Now, the kind of good news for them is that since then we've had a series of, you know, market, market crashes and the equity premium is not looking as good and perhaps um, you know, certainly on a backward-looking basis, perhaps now is a level where where it makes more sense. Um, so it's really hard. You know, the best job you can do is just look at a lot of data and say, well, on average, over the last 30, 40 years, it looks like, the, you know, this thing should be at roughly this level. And that's the approach taken by, it's not quite the same thing, but something like, the you know, the Schiller-KP ratio. You know, it's a, you you just take you don't have a kind of opinion on where the the uh, long-term level should be. You just take a really long average and say, "Well, on average, it looks like let's go back to bonds. You know, ten-year bonds seem to return on average about two and a half percent more than two-year bonds on average, on an outright basis." Um, and if you you know you do you do that exercise, and then and then it, you can then say, "Well, if that's the case, then you know the currently the premium is very low or very high, and therefore when I expect that to revert or increase to that, and that's my part of my valuation model." But you know that that's really you know as we know. <laughs> These things can go to a long way from those levels very, very, very quickly. Now, one thing that is quite interesting, actually, I did a, I did a blog post recently, and um, it's not I'm not going to necessarily discuss in great detail because it, it kind of relate. It's not really a sort of trading a trading blog post post. But what I was doing was looking at the um, the kind of risk adjusted returns of across and within asset classes. Okay, which is a kind of you know, interesting empirical question. It makes sense if you're if you're a kind of an investor, but not if you're a trader. So not necessarily that relevant. Um and what I found really interesting was that in most asset classes, there isn't really a, a strong relationship between risk and return. Okay. In other words, generally speaking, um you don't really get rewarded for, for more risk within asset classes. You do across asset classes. So you tend to make more money in, say, commodities which are riskier than say bonds or FX, which means Another way of saying that is if you look at the SHA ratio of different asset classes, it's broadly the same. So you broadly get rewarded for return and risk across asset classes, within asset classes, not so much. And this is kind of a, um, you know, a lot of people do a lot of work in, in equities on this, and I thought I'd have a look at it across asset classes and within, in different asset classes of futures. Um, and what I found was, was yeah, generally speaking, there isn't really much of a relationship there and the only exception is bonds and in bonds. Um, there really is a very strong relationship between, um, risk and return. In other words, generally speaking, longer duration bonds, which are riskier because they've got high, high, well, they've got higher duration. Duration just sensitivity to interest rates, right? So they're always going to be riskier, generally speaking. Higher duration bonds earn more than lower duration bonds. And on a risk adjusted basis, if you look at the Sharpe ratios, they're fairly similar. um, so, so that, and that, but that's a, something that's always unique about the asset class. Um, so it does like look like in bonds the kind of evidence for there being some kind of term premium, you know, over long periods of time,
1: is is fairly solidly there. I would say. So yeah, <laughs> I've not yeah, really no. answered your question. No, it, no. I mean it's interesting. <laughs> but, I mean I would have guessed that maybe the return for the volatility in bonds is less. I mean in the sense that if you look at something like the really long duration treasuries or something like TLT and, and the size of the drawdown we've seen there, um, which is what forty. I guess forty, fifty percent or something like I I would have to check. Maybe even more. Uh and the volatility there is, is certainly as high as equities, I think, if not higher at high I mean, uh, I am not sure what it is over really long periods, but but I would have thought that the returns are obviously not as high as equity. So uh but um but then bonds are kind of an unusual asset in the sense that the more they sell off the the you know, the future returns then look more attractive. So they're well, that's um, different to other strategies. Yeah.
0: That's supposedly true of equities yeah. as well. It's just that the math isn't as obvious, right? I mean, yes, you know. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, but uh, uh, so in reality, it's not that bonds are an interesting kind of asset. It's more that bond and equity investors think differently. That, yes. That's kind of the
1: way I think about I guess it. so. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: now, just, just to go back to what you said, now, it is, what's interesting is I'm looking at this graph more closely. And actually, that relationship I described does seem to, bend, to break down beyond about 10, 10, 20 years. And as I said, uh, you know, right at the start of the discussion, Weird things do seem to start happening at the very long end of the yield curve, so it's it's a quite a strong relationship. So if I look at the the, the returns for you know say US twos, fives, tens, and twenties, there's pretty much a straight line there. You do get seem to get rewarded pretty pretty consistently for for the additional risk you're taking on. But then if I look at thirty years, actually they do they, they do worse than than five years. You know, so I don't know. I mean, there's a lot, an awful lot of caveats to this kind of analysis. One, one is that you know the the lengths of history are different for each of these instruments because the the futures haven't been around as long. So I'd need to dig in more and see if there was an effect there. But you know, generally speaking, I would say that you do seem to get a, when I've looked at this in more detail, and this is a while ago now. This is like ten years ago. So there's more data coming to the data set. But generally speaking, there does seem to be that shorter duration bonds on a sharp ratio basis, do a little bit better than longer duration bonds. And and as I just said, very long duration bonds, you know, do seem to be not a very good way of of accessing interest rate risk because you just get a lot of volatility and not much returns.
1: Well, I guess that might make sense. I mean, in terms of obviously with the long duration bonds, historically, you've had that positive convexity and, uh, you know, so so you have that nice property that there might be that uh, desire for people to hold them in their portfolios, which would justify a, a a lower sharp than the than, than lower duration bonds, wouldn't that be reasonable?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, one thing I always, I found interesting the, you know, was why three, two, three years ago, it was only like, I don't know, the Austrian government that was issuing a hundred year bonds. Well, yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was the trade of this, of the millennium, right? You know, um, I don't, And I mean, the, the UK government say, for example, compared to some, you know, say the US do issue longer duration bonds. Then, and, um, you know, therefore, again, their, their funding cost is kind of locked in for longer. But why, you know, why we weren't just pushing out 30, 40, 50, 100-year bonds? People would have been buying this paper and, you know, the, the people stupid enough to buy them would now be sitting on, you know, 80, 70, 80, 90% loss. Um, but the government would have locked in cheap funding for, for five or six generations.
1: But anyway, that's this another story. Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, we've got um, a lot of interesting topics. You reached out to your uh, fan base on Twitter and uh, they came back with uh, quite a number of interesting um, topics. So we may as well just get go into them one by one in terms of the, the, the questions. The first one was from Andre um, and he's asking, what's your take on systematic strategies complementing trends such as buy, fear, sell, greed, uh, short term, mean reversion type strategies? Um, to fill the potholes in the equity curve, he said. Alan and Nick talked about this uh, it, last week. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, the general point about, and I guess as you say, you've got them in your own portfolio. What's your take on on kind of reversion type strategies uh, uh, as a uh, as a diversifier to trend following? Well, the nice thing about reversion
0: type strategies is is that at the same time frame, they're obviously perfectly negatively correlated with trend following. So you know. They, they would provide you the best possible diversification. Now, of course, if you were to just say, let's say you, you trend follow you know, with a holding period of, say, three months roughly, if you were to just flip that signal around and do it as a mean reversion trade, it would be perfectly negatively correlated, but you'd lose money, at least in the back test, because trend makes money, right? So what do you, you've you got to be looking for is, is um, other places where trend doesn't work so well and where when mean reversion works so well. So you've got to move away from the, certainly the time frequency is one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is look, is go into more relative value trading. So um, it might be that you've got two assets that trend well, um, um, but actually um, there's a relationship between them, a relative value trade between them, which is mean reverting. And actually you see that a lot in the fixed income space. So, um, you know, people trade, for example, butterflies, which would be something like, say the two, five and 10 year point on the yield curve. Um, and if, if you kind of plot the relationship between those and you roll adjust it or beta adjust it or duration adjust it, it is quite mean reverting. So that's, that's potentially mean reverting trading in a relative value space. Um, but, but obviously what, what the question is pointing at is the idea of rather than it's, it's sort of staying with a kind of outright system. So not doing relative value, but moving into a different time space. Okay. So you can either go slower or faster. Um, so we, we talked about, um, the idea of mean, you know, mean reversion to some equilibrium, that's your classic kind of slow value trade. So, um, you know, you, and, and it's, uh, it's, quite easy to implement something like, like this in, in, um, in, 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 this sort of CTA type portfolio, you just do something like take, you know, the price for the last five years, you probably want to normalize it in some way so that the, the, the series is to be technical for a second, got stationary properties so you can transform it into a. Kind of expected volatility standardized series, um, and if I'm allowed to plug just for a second, this is described in my book, my latest book. Um, and ba- ba- basically, you do that and you look at say the last five years and you say, okay, if the price in this adjusted way is below the price the last five years, we buy; otherwise, we sell. And this is exactly the kind of behavior we talk about. With these bond guys saying, "Oh, look, you know, the, the price has gone down a lot, therefore we buy. The price has gone up a lot, therefore we sell." um you know that that's you you're basically assuming that that the nothing about the market has sort of changed to make that kind of equilibrium price any different you're just interested in buying the dips and selling the highs now the downside with that is because it's a slow trading strategy generally speaking there's there's almost an a, a mathematical law that the slower you trade the lower expected returns will be because you just got fewer opportunities you you're not visiting the the, the the table in the casino quite as many times um, so it's not that you know, you're talking about something that, that rather than say across a diversified futures portfolio, I might expect to hit a sharp of say one trend following, this is more like 0.2. Okay. So it's, and it's pretty close to being statistically insignificant. So it's not really a strategy you can trade. And so, because look, oh, look there's very strong evidence for this being a great thing to do. It's, it's, it's something you you basically, you basically have to just trust it's going to work. And you never put a big amount of your money into it for all of those reasons. The other thing you can do is push to the shorter end of the spectrum. Uh, this is, you know, really now we're getting to where the, the question is going. Now it does look like if you look at the performance of trend following strategies at different holding periods, um, there's kind of a sweet spot around holding period of maybe a month, say, and it depends on the asset class. So in equities, it's a lot slower. Go slower than that, and performance starts to come down a little bit, but not dramatically. So it, even with holding periods of a year, it's still pretty good. Go faster than that, and ignoring costs as well, by the way, this is before costs because obviously the faster you go, the more costs you have to pay. And I'll come on to that in a second. Before costs, the performance starts to degrade. Um, and when you, when you're down to holding periods of, you know, a week or maybe a couple of weeks or a few days around that region, performance looks doesn't look very good at all. Now, poor trend falling performance doesn't necessarily translate into a profitable mean reversion strategy, even though they're the opposite side of the coin. One reason is costs, because obviously these things are going to be trading in a much higher frequency than than you the thing something that's got a one month holding period. Now, that's maybe not the end of the world because um, it just you know it might be that you just have to cut down the number of things you're trading to smaller universe. Okay, so you you may end up with um, you know, a lot fewer kind of commodity markets in there and a lot more equity markets because the equity indices on average tend to have cheaper trading costs. So you, you you might, you know, that's one way of getting around that problem. But that automatically you, it's a less attractive idea, right? Because it's, you know, one of the great, wonderful things about trend following is its ability to multiply performance massively. You know, individual instruments don't do that well. Portfolio of 100 instruments does really well. With these mean reversion portfolios, you're maybe not going to get that if you can't trade everything. Now, the, the other thing is you're not just looking for a kind of a weak or slightly negative trend following performance because, you know, ignoring costs, that's just going to translate into mean reversion profits of zero or slightly positive. It's not necessarily that attractive. So, you you know, but you need to, you need, that the market doesn't need to just kind of, the levels of trend following doesn't just need to kind of decay to nothing as you go faster. It needs to actually go negative and negative enough to pay for trading costs and to become an, an attractive proposition. I've done a lot of, Research on this, but I have to say, more in the theoretical sense. So I've not never had the, um, never quite got around to yet implementing a, a sort of super fast trading strategy myself. So what we can do is say, well, we know this. There's something that definitely works as a mean reversion strategy, and that's high frequency trade, because you, you're basically hoping to buy at the bid, sell at the offer, and just do that 100 times a second, all day, every day. That, but but obviously the the, the barriers to entry to that, and the technology required, and so on. It, it's something that's not just out of scope for me as a kind of someone trading my own money, but actually out of scope really for a lot of institutional CTAs, because they're not necessarily going to have the right people, um, or the right skills or the right technology. And if they do want to get into that business, they're going to have to make a huge investment. And you think about some the people they're competing with, you know, people like, um, Citadel, for example, you know, you know, it's, it's quite a high, um, moat those guys have got around them. Um, I mean, start, there are startup HFTs that do well with limited amounts of capital. But again, that's the key thing. It's limited amounts of capital. You know, if you're a billion-dollar CTA and you can trade 10 million of that as HFT capital, is it really worth it? You know, it's not going to move the needle, even if in its isolation, it's a highly profitable strategy. So looking to go a bit slower than that. Um, so I did some analysis, really, and I found, for example, that um, if you look at something called the autocorrelation of returns, so this is just a fancy way of saying, if, okay, given what the return was one period ago, what is the period correlation between that and, and the correlation now? And if returns are positively correlate, to correlated that you know that means, for example, if the price went up last month, then it's more likely to go up this month. Well, I've just described a trend following strategy, basically. So, you know, that, well, that's the sort of thing we're looking for. Um, the auto-correlation of um, future returns, um, for sort of one to two hours is quite strongly negative. So that's indicative that mean reversion will probably work well at that, fre- at that frequency. And then there's effectively, it kind of looks quite, gets a bit worse and worse. And then it's, you know, meandering around and, and it, you know, that there are times when it's more weekly negative. So again, something like three, four days, it looks okay. And then as we know, when we get up to two weeks, one month, the trend form is working. So the autocorrelation has gone positive. So it looks on paper like real you know, stuff that for me is very short term, you know, like obviously as a high frequency trader, an hour is like an, an eon, you know, but but for me, that's just is insane. It seems insanely quick. It looks like mean reversion would work very well there. I have done some work showing mean reversion well, works pretty well for the sort of five, six days as well, but it's much harder than trend bullying. So we've discussed costs. That's one reason why it's much harder. Um, and there are things you can do with your execution strategy to try and um, reduce your costs, but they aren't you know, they're more difficult. From a kind of operational and technological point of view, it's much harder. Um, And the other thing that that may not be so obvious is actually risk management mean reversion strategies is also much harder. Because one of the nice things about trend following strategies is they kind of do their own risk management. So, you know, you you get into a trend and then there's two main ways people tend to play it. One is to put a stop loss in. But I say, you know, I don't need a stop loss. I just wait for the trend to reverse itself and close my position and get into the new trend on the other side. Um, you can't really do that with mean reversion because if you get into a mean reversion trade and it then moves in your favor, well, you're going to close the position at some point because you've reached the equilibrium. If it moves against you, your mean reversion's formula says, oh, buy more. This is great. Let's have more of this. You know, let's let's just, just fill our boots. Um, and that's just obviously not necessarily a great thing to do because if the market keeps moving, you're going to get murdered. So you probably do need an explicit stop loss in that situation. So for, for, me, for me, that becomes, and then you get into this, this sort of slightly tricky situation where you've got this extra parameter, you've got to calibrate and you, you've got to, you know, the thing is, it's already well worth to say, oh, well, I've got to close a trade now, but then when do you reopen it? You know, you've got to wait because it looks like it's a great trade now. So do you wait for the price to move one cycle back in and out? It gets really, really complicated and much harder to a back test and not very over-parameterized. So um, it's it's um, and there are ways around that, and there, there are things I've looked at. these are things like trend following filters as uh, as an alternative to stop losses that, that work pretty well. But yeah, so it, it's kind of something that I like the idea of, but for me personally, I know it's going to be quite a lot of work. I'm not sure that the extra turn's worth it. Um, very quickly, one thing that's much more promising though is using these kinds of very short term signals as some kind of overlay to your execution. So in very simple terms, the way that might work is this. Suppose that you think that um, prices uh, mean revert on say a daily basis, and you've got a daily trading system. Something you could do that's really simple is open up the the market in the morning. Let's say your daily system wants to sell. Well, you'll only sell if the price in the last day has changed in accordance with the mean reversion system. So you're never actually trading the the mean reversion system, the short term system outright, which would be too expensive, but you you use it as a, as an overlay to your trend flow system, so that's another way to use
1: it. Yeah, as you say, I mean intuitively it is appealing. I mean things like overbought, oversold. I mean that that would have been the classic kind of technical perspective, you know, trading with a trend and then looking for signs of trend exhaustion and looking at momentum indicators and things like that. Presumably you haven't found anything in that domain that has, I mean, has worked. I mean
0: that that that's a whole a whole kind of part of 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 the. Um, Trading world that I, I kind of stay away from, to be honest, because it a lot of that stuff's very, very, you know, sub- subjective. Uh, uh, is, I tend to fall the most of these these indicators fall into one or three camps. They're either basically doing the same as something I already use, but but in a slightly more woolly way, um, or they they just don't work, or they're subjective. So yeah, um, I, I generally wouldn't. I generally stay away from that stuff. That doesn't mean to say it doesn't work. It's just just not my expertise.
1: And obviously, as you say, with respect to kind of the the longer term reversion, I mean, you do see that a bit uh, in terms of even more fundamental oriented. You know, you touched on currencies in the yen. Obviously, a lot of people saying that the net yen is very undervalued. So, you know, if you had a multi system, uh, multi strap presume, you'd still be short the yen on a trend basis. But then, I guess you would start to balance that with more long yen positions. But as you say, then how do you how do you risk manage that? Uh, the further it goes, to the, the more value there is there so i guess um, there's probably a sizing element i guess so you presume you would never run these on a, on a kind of an, a, an equal an equal risk allocation basis it, it's no way probably, i mean yeah. i do
0: actually have a uh, i don't have the short-term stuff i do actually have a long a long-term kind of value type indicator in my system but it's it's got quite a small risk weighting. so yes it's, it's at the moment it's probably buying a little bit of yen but but it it's overwhelmed by the size of the position from my my trend system and um, probably my other systems as well so so it's it's just moving the needle a little bit because yeah it's such a weak signal and so hard to and also hard to risk manage it's almost the worst possible thing you can trade i believe it deserves a small allocation because of the negative correlation but it doesn't make any sense to make it 50 50 as you say
1: yeah okay fair enough um We'll move on to the next question from Harry. It's around medium and high-frequency trading strategies. And he says, medium and high-frequency fre- trading strategies can presumably achieve much higher sharp ratios than lower-frequency strategies employed by CTAs. So can you speak about the lure of high-frequency strategies for traders with modest capital uh, and how much research have you done? So you've talked a little bit about that, but maybe just um, focusing particularly on I guess all of the different types of strategies, including trend on short-term time horizons.
0: Yeah. So, um, Harry's Ryan, I did I did briefly say already that that the more times you get to visit the the, the casino, the more money you're going to make as a rule of thumb. Um, so, and actually, there's this something called the, the law of active management that says basically, if you halve your holding period, then all of the things being equal, your your returns will increase by the square root of two. So that means if you go from say an average holding period of a month, which is about four weeks, down to a week, then you 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 in theory your returns could double. Now there's an awful lot of a lot of work being done by the words in theory there. So obviously costs we've talked about already. Um that how that will have an effect. Um and the the other thing is of course, you are you're assuming that you can find things that are as good as what you're currently training, your current spe- spectrum. So, for example, if you were to just speed up your your, your trend following system, certainly um, I don't really see, as I said, I see, I see trend doing worse as I speed it up from kind of a one month down to three weeks, two weeks, one week. And, um, you know, there has been some people have shown that, for example, a sort of intraday trend strategy seem to do well. So maybe there's something there but 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 you know the problem is again costs and costs actually for for very short trend following strategies are really really bad because the kind of execution tactics you can use to try and reduce your costs actually you can't use them because because basically you know, let, let's say you're trading trend with a holding period of something silly like an, i don't know an hour to me that seems silly my current execution strategy um you know is, is basically patient is happy to kind of just chill out and spend the whole day executing an order if necessary because you know what i've got a one month holding period i know that one day is not going to make any difference to my alpha but on the other hand i could i could get the trade more cheaply if i just chill out um but if you've got only got got to be holding position for an hour then you you can't do that you know you've got maybe a minute three four maybe five minutes tops to get into that position before um you know the alpha starts to decay and that means you, you, you've got to um, be a lot more aggressive in your execution. You've got to cross the spread and that means you're going to be paying those spreads every single time you train. Your training costs are just going really through the roof. So I think it's very hard to trade very fast trend following strategies, except again, perhaps as an overlay on top of a, a slower system, as an execution overlay, that, that may work. It, it You know, it, again, it's, it's something that um, seems great, but actually when you kind of break it down, you know, you have to, well, I guess part of it, is, I'm being honest, part of it's path dependence, right? If I was starting from scratch with no um, kind of previous experience, maybe I would be like, actually, I'll build a fast trend blank system uh, for a fast trading system, full stop. But because I, I look at my current system and it's pretty good, you know, it's pretty good. Um, it works in a particular way. Um, I kind of feel I understand it. I kind of feel I'm exploiting well known effects. And I know that my my trading costs are never going to be excessively high. It's then, uh, and then I've got potentially a huge investment of time and effort and then risk of capital to do something that's very, very different that I don't feel I've got any expertise in. So that's the, the truth, you know, some, any research to do in this area really is going to be about potentially putting in some kind of execution overlay, mm. I don't, you know.
1: But is that because you come from a large institutional background and that's your whole experience? Yeah, to, I, think it, I think,
0: as I said, I think that's probably quite a lot to do with it, um, but but I have, you know the, the lure of the the kind of you know the pot of gold at the, at the end of the short term high you know higher not higher but higher frequency trading strategy i I've, I've you know i have been trying to find it and occasionally I, I kind of get my my spade out and i I dig around i do some back tests and i i occasionally I find something that looks promising um but but then you know it it's not promising enough that because for example I could only trade in a limited number of markets you know so automatically, I, I lose all this diversification benefit I've got. And um, the problem I don't have is, as you know, I've got quite a small account um, by institutional standards, quite a large one of retail standards, but quite a small in institutional standards. So capacity's not an issue for me. So that that wouldn't be an issue for me. So that that's a good thing. But the, the sort of effort required for what I feel would be quite a modest improvement, because it might, well, best case scenario is I'd find something I could trade with three or four equity markets. Hive off part of my capital to trade just those markets, um, um, but but then you know it's not. Yes, that would probably be profitable, but the opportunity cost of lo- you know of, of losing that capital to a less diversified, even though it's a higher performing strategy and a riskier one in a sense because the higher costs. Um, yeah, so I'm not saying don't do it, but but um, it's not. It, you know, things that are profitable are not easy. Otherwise, we'd all be rich. You know, they. You know, put that on my tombstone.
1: Yeah. I mean, but there is—I mean—there is a sense that with certain strategies, you know, being capacity constrained can obviously work at lower levels of AOM, but that yeah. they're not really. Yeah, I mean, that's feasible. true.
0: That's one hundred percent true. Yeah. Um,
1: but 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 you're saying that maybe fast trend following isn't maybe necessarily one of those, or it might be, but it's just the the operational headache of you'd actually have to sit there every day and and monitor your portfolio probably a lot more than you currently do is. A, so that's part I mean of people thinking.
0: people do people do do fast trend following or at least people kind of market themselves as fast trend followers so you know and some of them make money so there is there's clearly a business there but you know it's like anything else a lot of the time I get asked on the podcast Rob why don't you trade equities you know Jerry trades equities I'm like well yeah I would if I had a team of three or four people working for me I probably would trade equities but as an individual you know the the additional benefit I get from Um, from from trading those equities is not sufficient for the the work that would be put in. That doesn't mean, by the way, that I think that trend-following individual equities is wrong or bad or a silly thing. I don't think any of those things is true. Um, I'm a bit more skeptical about fast trend-following than I am about slow trend-following of individual equities so that the bar is even higher in a sense, because I'm not 100% convinced there's something there, whereas I know know for a fact, because I've done it in the past in an institutional environment, that if I was to use my existing system on individual equities, it would be profitable. It's just that the, the the work involved is quite high.
1: So what would you say is the the advantage? If you're trading, say, a million dollar account versus a billion dollar account, what are the things you can do at the million or maybe the 10 million a dollar? Is it having a larger risk position in some of the smaller markets? Would you, is that the big advantage, would you say, for the smaller account? Or I would or say one? that,
0: yeah, that's definitely one of the big advantages. So when I was you know, trading AHL, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, it was a thirty billion rather than one billion account. There's a sweet spot, I would say, somewhere between fifty, hundred, and probably two hundred and fifty million. I would say, because my my problem is, I can't tr- trade everything I want to trade from an, because of account sizing, because of position sizing, right? So you know, you go down to the extreme level where you've just got a thousand dollar account, you can probably only trade a couple of instruments that have us low enough. You know margin requirement to trade as you get more money things improve because you can add more and more instruments that's great um somewhere around 50 million you're probably able to take a position in at least a one contract or a two contract position in pretty much every liquid futures market in the world that's great and you can you're 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 unconstrained in terms of your allocation so you can allocate just as much to cheese as you can to s p 500 as you go from 50 to 250, that equation doesn't change that much, so you maybe can't put quite as much in cheese as you can in, in S&P 500 when you get to 250, but it's not really enough of a difference to make a material difference. Then on the journey between 250 and 30 billion, you move. You can no longer put have an unconstrained approach capacity-wise to, to risk allocation. So when you get to 30 billion, you're going to have a lot more in S&P 500 than you are in cheese. And that isn't because you you think S and is a much better market than cheese. It's purely a capacity issue. So that that's the you know. So one billion dollars is probably a bit north of that optimum point, but not too far off it. So um, so yeah, that you know as an allocator, you know there are obviously there are there are no, no you know there are there are advantages to to, to being in a thirty billion dollar rather than a two fifty million dollar um, fund as well. Because uh, again, for example, you know you might not have the the um, the heft, for example, the trade OTC markets where you need isters and things like that. You know, as a as a two hundred fifty million dollar fund, you you might be struggling to meet kind of, you know, the, you you'd be able to get in the door of, of a prime broker, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to employ the people required to kind of deal with the, the operational side of, of running of running an OTC trading business. So there are, you know, there are still advantages you go as you go above above the kind of two hundred fifty mark, but the 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 main disadvantage is absolutely you cannot put the capacity. Um, You you hit capacity constraints as you try and diversify across markets, basically.
1: Makes sense. Um, Okay, we'll move on to the next question from Ravi. Uh, Can you please talk about techniques to prevent overfitting of a strategy? Is it possible to quantify fitting of a strategy to data? And more importantly, how can we detect overfitting? Uh, And then separately, how can we measure the robustness of a strategy? So what's interesting
0: about, about Ravi's question is actually, he's put scare quotes around every other word. So, he said fitting, he's put fitting in scare quotes and he's put detect in spare scare quotes and he's also put robustness in scare quotes. And I'm wondering whether whether this is because he doesn't believe that that these things exist or or, or whether he's not sure of the, the, the terminology, but anyway, that's quite fine. Um Ryan, this is something that, that we could talk for, for hours, days, years on. Um and um at some point um I will probably write another book on 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 just on, on this subject, um, because it's something I get asked about quite a lot. So the way I think about overfitting is basically what you're doing is you're assuming that the future is going to be too much like the past. So we have to assume the future is going to be a bit like the past. I mean, we I guess the, the, there are some people, you know, because we say, well, for example, you know, we backtest trend following strategies and we find in the past they do well. So we we kind of think, okay, well, in the future trend following will do well, so we'll carry on doing it. That's there's a big assumption there clearly, but but that you know, uh, I'd say all oh, systematic traders have have to have to make that assumption. That's fine. What isn't fine is saying something like, well, if I look at um, gold, I find that using a, a 32 and 87 day crossover um, with a, a stop loss of 1.6 times um, the, the annual volatility um, with a stop profit of um, 7.8 times the price. Um, and uh, also I'll close my position if the third Fibonacci retracement on a Wednesday, it's a negative value and the moon is full. That's overfitting. Okay, because what you've basically done is looked at your back test and said, "Well, when that incredible <laughs> confluence of things happened, you know, gold did really well in, in the back test, and it was probably on the you know the 23rd of July in 1984 or something like that." Um, you're like, "That was the best the best day to have gold in the back test when all of these things happened." That's overfitting, clearly, because um, you're assuming that that, that, that the future is going to be exactly like the past was in the past, and that that's clearly not clearly not going to happen. Um, now the line, the line between uh, the, the sort of those two extremes of the continuum is obviously very wide, and um, it's not easy to say exactly where the the um, the point is where you're, you're you're going wrong. It's easy to say theoretically where you're going wrong, and it's where you're uh, basically the more fitting you do, the more you improve your in-sample performance, the backtest performance of your strategy, but the worse your strategy will do out of sample. And what you want to do, what you're aiming to do is maximize the outer sample performance of your strategy, because that's where you make money. No one pays you for a backtest, uh, unless you publish it in an academic journal, perhaps, or unless you're working for a, f- for a fund that foolishly has some kind of backtested-related pay structure. Um, so you want to maximize your outer sample um, performance. Um, and that means you you want to basically do just enough fitting so that that you're, um, you're kind of capturing... Um, so let you know, for example, as we were talking about speed of trend. So you wanna be, for example, doing just enough fitting so you're not trading the very fastest signals, which where the trend doesn't do so well or is also very expensive, and you're probably not trading the very slowest signals where performance starts to degrade. Um, you know, you want to be kind of in the middle somewhere, that's fine, that's good. That would be a good a good a good amount of fitting to do. Um but you don't want to be going beyond that point. Now, to actually detect it, there are a number of different ways you can detect it. One one way is to look at the performance of your strategy across different subsamples of the past and you can either literally do that by saying well how did it do in the 1980s how did it do in the 1970s or you can pull random years out or random days or months out in a technique which is known as bootstrapping or what bootstrapping and you can ba- what you can basically do is look at the the distribution performance of your strategy across those the the different let's call them alternative histories okay and what you're looking for is something that does pretty well across lots of different alternative histories. Um, if it's, on the other hand, your performance is very peak, in other words, it does really well if in, if for the alternative histories that were very much like the history we've actually had, then then you probably overfitted and you'd, you should be very wary of running that. Because, you know, the chances are that you're sitting on the peak of that high mountain very low, you're more likely on the other sides of the, the, the deep, despondent valleys of overfitting, uh, which is actually a good title for the book I might write on the subject. So... You know, that and that's also effectively a measure of robustness because what you're saying is, is the strategy robust to conditions in the market changing, not being exactly like they were in the past? And there are you can you can take things further. So, for example, you know, a, a lot of people, um, interestingly, you know, 10, 10 12 years ago, um, a, lot, a lot of people were saying, well, we don't think that CTAs are going to do very well when interest rates start rising, you know, when that starts happening. And it took many years, many years for that to happen and and the, you know the reason being that you know a lot of performance has come from being short bonds and it's hard to make money sorry being long bonds it's hard to make money being short bonds. blah blah, blah. we talked about that um so one one thing i actually did as a, an exercise was to look at the the conditional distribution of returns of the strategies conditional on what interest rates were doing whether they were low whether they were high whether they were rising when they're falling um, and basically if if the, our strategies had not been robust we'd have seen a you know a r- amazing performance when interest rates were falling. You know, um, as it was, the distribution of returns between those different environments was actually fairly stable. It was a bit better when interest rates were falling, but it wasn't like terrible in the other states. And that that hopefully gave um, people confidence that um, you know when interest rates start rising, CTAs could potentially do still carry and do well. Um, and you can judge for yourself whether that was an accurate
1: statement. But certainly, looking at the. Yeah. the well, we've only test. we've only one version of the history of the yeah, last exactly. two years yeah well. yeah so
0: that, that's <laughs> that's that's a very very brief discussion of what is a, as I said a massive topic and and there are all kinds of fancy techniques of, of doing it but the main the main thing is to if you find yourself running a hundred back tests and perfecting your strategy then you've almost certainly you're almost certainly overfitting you know if you've just done one or two then you're probably okay
1: that that's a good rule of thumb okay. I mean, you mentioned bootstrapping there, which is kind of a technique of, as you say, kind of randomly plucking the data from the past. Is is that? I mean, obviously, it's statistically valid. I mean, some people might say, well, the returns occurred in a particular order in the past. Yeah. Given the sequence of that's the why you can use a, te-
0: a technique called block bootstrapping, where instead of you basically sample blocks of time. So you might sample years, for example, rather than just days. Um, and the, the you're actually right, because what you want to do is preserve the the kind of order of the returns within within those periods. Um so so obviously if you're trendful and with a monthly time horizon and you start bootstrapping days or even months, then you're gonna lose that autocorrelation and just gonna get noise back. So you can do it, you just you then just do it with years. The downside of that, of course, is there's only a limited number of years in your data set. So you'll you get less information from what you're doing, but you know, you can still you can, it's still better than just running a single back test.
1: Fair enough. We've got a couple of questions from Tommy. Um, so we must well go on to those given we're moving along on time. So first one, what's your take on the AHL trend ETF? So uh, it's called AHLT. So we touched on this a little bit a couple of weeks ago with Andrew. Um, maybe, yeah, quickly, have you had a look at that? Um, any, any thoughts on, on AHL moving into the ETF space? So obviously I, I have a
0: kind of lot of loyalty to AHL. Um as I often say, they you know, I worked for them for quite a while and they they paid for my house effectively. So um, I'm still, you know, a big fan of them. Um although I don't own any shares or anything like that. And so sort of my interest is is purely kind of sentimental rather than financial. Um so yeah, I'm a big I'm also a big fan of people um make democratising the let's call it the alternative asset space. You know, let's let's call it that. So I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big I'm a big fan of ETFs as well, um as well. And I'm quite jealous as a as a you know a UK a European based investor of the the variety of ETFs in, in in the US in particular that it seems to be a lot a lot easier to branch out. Um, so I like the principle of the idea. Now the problem is with the the ETF um, implementation is that it often um, comes with um, some restrictions that make it you just can't be as Unconstrained as you are in a sort of standard managed account structure, for example, or in an offshore fund. Now, and I don't know because I'm not an expert on the legal side of things whether some of the choices that have been made in the design of this product are due to those restrictions or whether they were deliberate design decisions. So I'll say that up front. So with all that in mind, um, so the expense ratio is uh, I think it's uh, about nine, I think it's 95 basis points, which is okay for, for an alternative beta fund. Seems. Pretty reasonable, and obviously it's, that's probably cheaper than investing in, in a you know in, in a sort of classic hedge fund structure. They, oh, I should also declare an interest in that one of the portfolio managers is an old colleague and a very old friend of mine. So uh, I, I should you know obviously bias there as well. Um, it doesn't seem to have many instruments inside it. Um, so looking at the material I'm looking at, it has, tw- so it has twenty. To me, that feels low. Um, as I said, one of the big advantages for diver- for the trend following universe is diversification. Twenty to me seems on the low side, so that that's my main kind of bugbear with this product. And as I said, that that may be a legal re- regulatory compliance issue as to why that that's there. Otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm a big fan of the sort of minimum account size to either trade your own portfolio or to in, even to invest in a say diversified fund of fund of funds is quite high. I'm a big fan of something where someone can. Put you know five hundred dollars into something that's going to give them exposure to something they wouldn't otherwise have exposure to. So,
1: if you were to guess, putting you on the spot here, you know what would be the sharp degradation going from the all bells and whistles diversified managed futures program uh, trading two hundred markets with maybe trend and non-trend down to a twenty market trend program?
0: Um, it's going to be. I don't need to guess because I've done the analysis. So in an expectation, it's probably an order of magnitude of two. So you 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 would be cutting a, a like a one and a half sharp or a point seven five sharp, something like that.
1: Okay, but you still think it could be as high as point seven five for the trend?
0: Well, I, I mean, or, or one to a half.
1: Not one to a half. Okay. Yeah, that's that's probably more realistic,
0: actually. Um, yeah. So um, so yeah, it's not it's not going to be. And of course, a lot of it's, that's an expectation, right? So you could you could get lucky and your 20 markets would be doing brilliantly. Um, but for example, let's, this year, if one of those 20 markets was was orange juice, yeah. You, yeah, you'd, sure. look, you'd look amazing, right? You'd probably be doing better than be. 100 asset portfolio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you didn't have orange juice and you were playing against someone who didn't have orange juice, you obviously an expectation you'd, do, you'd be doing worse. So on a year-to-year basis, there's a lot of luck involved as to whether you do worse or better with a bigger portfolio. But in expectation, I would say you're going to cut your performance by, let's be generous, between a third and a half, I would yeah. say.
1: And is that the same, like obviously we know with something like that, presumably launching an ETF, the idea is to have big assets. So it's always going to have, you know, more risk in fixed income and the the liquid markets. Uh, so given that you know that kind of in advance, does that tilt the number for even a little bit more?
0: Uh, well, not necessarily. I mean, we talk, we talked about, so, I mean, it's, these alternative asset ETFs, I mean, obviously, you know, it'd be amazing if it became like, you know, SPY and was, you know, whatever it is, a half a trillion dollars or whatever ridiculous number it is. Um, these alternative beta ETFs tend not to be, you know, that big. So, obviously, it'd be great for AHL as a business. If it did become very big, that'd be that'd be superb. But um, even if it, you know, I mean, AHL is, let's say, I don't know the exact numbers because I don't. Not following the business that closely, but say it's a thirty billion dollar fund. And, you know, if they would do well to have a one billion dollar ETF in alternative assets, uh, you know that's increasing their kind of market footprint by three percent. So if you look at it holistically, it's not really making a making a lot of difference. That, that's this is an interesting kind of um, question we, that we that we used to discuss because because actually, if you let's say that you're you've got a thirty billion dollar ETF and you're constrained in your allocation to say cheese. You launch a new small fund. Do you allow it to be completely unconstrained and say, "Yeah, you can have more, a lot, relatively a lot more cheese." Probably not much cheese in the grand scheme of things. Still a small fund. Yeah, I like cheese. That's why it's my favorite example of a market. But but um, you would still be. Or do you say, "Well, actually, if we look at our portfolio holistically across all of our funds, then we we would really ought to have the you know the same quite small allocation to cheese because you know." In our thirty billion dollars plus epsilon fund, that you know we don't want our market footprint in any market to be too big. Therefore, we should have a small allocation to cheese, or do, you, do essentially. Otherwise, what you're allowing is the people who are coming into the smaller fund. You're effectively prefer you're giving them preferential treatment effectively over your other investors, for example. So, you know that th- that's not necessarily a kind of theoretical question. That's actually potentially a, a kind of business question or a legal question. Even.
1: Yeah. Okay, final one just to wrap up. We're up, up on time. Uh from Tommy again, trend seems to be the perfect diversifier until it's not. In which scenarios do you expect equities and trend to be highly positively correlated?
0: When equities are going up. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah.
1: Kind of <laughs> when CTAs when, are long equities is When, when the CTAs answer, are long equities and
0: where yeah. also there are other assets, you know, that there are other assets which are um have got strong trends and therefore are providing, you know, so it might be that, you know, let's make it really simple and assume you trade let's just make it super simple and suppose you're a cta and you trade just two markets bonds and equities you know and you ask yourself that question well clearly it's going to be the case when um equities are going up and bonds are going up strongly and you've got position long position in both or when equities are going up and bonds are going down you've got a strong long and a strong short position it's going to be one of those two scenarios and um, so you know it's not going to be the case when equities are going down and bonds are going up or bonds are going down. And it's not really the case when, you know, most markets are going kind to of going sideways. Um, and th- this kind of com- comes back to, um, what I was saying earlier about performance during the year and equities not being great. You might look at the year date performance of equities and say, well, equities have done pretty well. CTAs on, on average haven't done that well. Um, but actually, um, you know, equities, that doesn't mean that equities have trended necessarily either. So it's not just that equities need to have gone up. They need to have gone up with a clear, with a clear trend. So Um, so yeah, I mean. If you're asking, if, if Tommy's asking for some kind of like macroeconomic analysis, and he's afraid friend's come to the wrong place, I'm just going to give you the kind of naive, stupid answer, which is when they're both going up.
1: Yeah, and we've seen that obviously in the data. Obviously, trend and equities tend to be positively correlated in an equity bull market, and tend to be negatively correlated in an equity bear market, in broad terms, which is exactly what you're saying. So. Very good. Well, we're up on time. Uh, we've managed to get through all of the questions, bang on time, so that was uh, an achievement in itself. Uh, so uh, uh, thanks very much, Rob. Great, great to chat to you. Um, and from all of us here on Top Twitters Unplugged, thanks very much. Niels is back next week, so it'll be business as usual. So take care and speak to you soon.